Our text today is from Job in our Hebrew scriptures. We'll be reading chapter 1, verse 1, and then skipping over to chapter 2 and reading the first 10 verses of chapter 2. You may follow along on the screens or have you have your own copy of scripture with you or the pew Bibles. I invite you to follow along as we look at this story. There once was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. One day, the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also come, came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you, Satan, incited, him against, incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Then Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin, all that people have they will give to save their lives. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, he is in your power, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job from his sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself, and he sat among the ashes. Then his wife said to Job, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. You are our rock and our fortress. Amen. When I was in middle school, my family was returning from a trip to St. Louis, and it was late at night, and we were looking for this four-lane road to bring us on home. And my dad, who was driving, saw the sign that indicated the on-ramp to that four-lane road was coming up. And then not long after that sign, he saw the beginning of a road, and so he went to take it. And within a second or two, he realized that this wasn't the on-ramp, a slowly merging on-ramp to that four-lane road. It was like a 75-degree turn onto a side road. And in that one second, Dad had two choices. Either try and make the turn at the speed that we were going, which most likely would roll us down into a deep ravine, or just go straight out into the darkness. We went straight. 
And for what seemed like five minutes, what was probably five seconds, we were a scene from Dukes of Hazard. We were airborne, suspended in time. No yeehaws were coming from this car, though. I mean, it was crazy. And in those five seconds, not five minutes, there were three different reactions from the four people that were in the car. And I'm not going to tell you names to protect all the parties involved, right? But one person screamed the entire way down. Two individuals said nothing as they internally processed everything with amazement and shock. And one individual was unbuckling their seatbelt mid-air to jump to safety. Ridiculous. Well, we landed down in that ravine, and after a little bouncing left to right, Dad finally got the car stopped, and we sat there stunned, like, what just happened? And then we had one more challenge ahead of us, which was to get up out of this deep ravine. And so Dad drove at this very slight angle, and my sister and I are in the back, leaning all the way to the left, sure that this car is going to roll back down the hill. Now, we laugh about that family adventure all the time. I mean, Chevy Chase is nothing on the Hatfields. And one of the things that we imagine is, what was it like for other cars driving by? I mean, the sudden elevation of taillights and then the disappearance might have seemed odd. Or perhaps they're driving and all of a sudden these headlights appear out of nowhere and wondering where this car came from. But mostly, we laugh about the different reactions to the individuals in our family when life sends us over the edge. Now I wonder, what would your response be if you suddenly found yourself airborne when you thought the road was smooth ahead of you? What would your reaction be if life was going smoothly and out of nowhere and for no reason it sent you straight over the edge? Now we'd like to think that we know what our response would be, but honestly you don't know until you're mid-air what you're going to do. No one plans to unbuckle their seatbelt when they're flying through the air. But God, in our story today, is absolutely confident of what one man's response is going to be when life sends him over the edge. And that man's name is Job. Now, the first chapter of Job that we didn't read today, but the portion that we did re read, describes him as a man that's honest inside and out, a man of his word, a one who is devoted to God and hates evil with a passion. And the author spends intentional time telling us two very important things about Job. First, that he is incredibly blessed, that he is wealthy beyond measure, that he has an, a large family. And the second thing that the author tells us is that he is upright and righteous pious, devoted to God. He was a dad who got up every morning, the scripture tells us, to offer sacrifice on behalf of his sons and daughters just in case in their ignorance the night before they had sinned. He was devoted. And Job's blessings and Job's devotion to God are so exaggerated in this story that it's clear the author really wants us to pay attention to these two characteristics. 
Now, in the drama of Job, as we are, are portraying it this month here in October, there are two major scenes here in the first two chapters of the book. And it switches back from this earthly scene, and then the curtain falls and it raises up on the heavenly scene. And so after we are introduced to the blessed and blameless Job on earth, the lights go up now on the heavenly realm with an assembly of spiritual beings or dignitaries that are gathered before the Lord. Think of it as a very major board meeting. And one of those in attendance is Satan or the Satan. And in Hebrew it's Hasatan. And it's really clear to important to know that it's not Satan as a name, that one that we would identify now as the devil or the evil one, it literally is translated the Satan as a title, that this is the adversary, the accuser. And in the story of Job, the Satan serves as this kind of prosecuting attorney that puts us and our loyalty to God and God himself on trial. Now, in that conversation, God directs the accuser and his attention to Job in their conversation, declaring that Job is his righteous and blameless servant. And the accuser agrees. It's true. But then the Satan asks the critical question, is Job devoted and blameless because he loves you, God? Or is it because you, God, have given Job a comfortable life? protecting him and blessing him. The accuser puts all his money on the ladder. And he says that if these blessings were removed, if Job's life suddenly and unexpectedly went airborne, that he would curse God. This is the accusation of the adversary, that Job doesn't really serve you, God. He serves himself. And if you remove all his protections and blessings and all these things, let's see what happens. He'll curse you. Cue dramatic music, right? This is a pivotal moment in the story. The accuser incites God, questioning Job's motive for loyalty, and God agrees to the test. God grants permission to Hasatan to treat and strike Job with only one limit, and that limit is that he cannot touch Job himself. And so with this permission, and only because God has given this permission, the accuser goes to work. Now, the scene shifts back to earth, and Job endures wave after wave of heart-crushing news from these messengers. And the scripture says that three times while he was speaking, meaning that when one messenger was coming with bad news, while he was speaking, he wasn't even done yet, and the second messenger comes to give even more bad news. Wave after wave, Job stripped of his fortune and all his possession. All his livestock and his wealth are destroyed. All of his servants are killed. And while that messenger is still speaking and the room is filled with wailing and mourning and disbelief, a third messenger comes with the final blow. Job, a great wind blew in and took the lives of all ten of your children. Those children that you prayed for every dawn are now gone. The unrelenting waves of suffering pound Job. And drowning in a sea of pain, Job could hardly catch his breath. Yet chapter 1 ends with these words. In all this, Job did not sin 
or charge God with wrongdoing. Now in our text today, in chapter 2, the story picked up again in the heavenly realm. And it is a repeat of the first conversation in the heavenly realms, except for a few minor changes. The beings arrive before God. God asks the accuser where he's been. The accuser responds to and fro on the earth. And then God once again brings up his servant Job and his righteousness. And he says, Satan, he still, Job still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. But the accuser is not ready to give up. He has a defense. Skin for skin, he says. Everyone knows that when it comes to our health, the threat of our very life, our physical pain, we will cave. And because you, God, said that I couldn't touch him, well, that's why he didn't blame you. You're still protecting and blessing him. So God says to him, okay, test him again. And this time you may touch Job, but you must spare his life. That's the limit. The curtain goes down in the heavenly realm. It comes back up on the earthly realm as the accuser afflicts Job with painful boils from head to toe. And today's text ends with Job sitting upon a pile of ashes outside the city, scraping his wounds with this broken piece of pottery. And his wife arrives, weighed down by their shared grief. She's lost everything as well, all their wealth, possession, status, their children. And now she watches her husband, who is in pain and misery, and voices what the accuser has been betting on this whole time. Why do you persist in your integrity, Job? Just curse God and go ahead and die. Like it seems inevitable, it seems like this is what God's going to do to you anyway, so just do it and be out of your misery. But Job, even in his immense pain, declares to his wife, shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, it says, Job did not sin with his lips. Job did not sin with his lips. That final phrase makes me pause always when I read it. It feels a bit like someone who says, I didn't lie, I just didn't tell you everything. Job did not sin with his lips. But are we beginning to see a crack in the devotion after all this misery? Is there something beginning to change in Job's mind and his heart as he goes through wave after wave of painful tests? Is this some kind of foreshadowing of some hard conversations to come between God and Job? Let's be honest this morning, okay? The first two and a half chapters of Job are really troubling and difficult. Pastor J.S. Randolph Harris says this about Job. The book of Job is a complex work exploring the intricate intersection of divine sovereignty, human faith, and innocent suffering. It is also a troubling work, troubling for the unsettling questions it poses to a neatly arranged, tidy faith. While we, the audience, are in the know to the heavenly and disturbing conversations between God and the accuser, Job is not. Job 
never learns the reason for his great suffering. He maintains his innocence to the end, and God continually affirms his innocence and integrity. And in a culture like ours, it highly values reasonable cause and effect. The story of Job is troubling. We prefer answers to mystery. We prefer clear rules and expect everyone, including God, to follow those rules. But God does not. Countless people among us and around us, some of you in this very room and watching with us online, can sit beside Job in the heap of the ashes in pain and with questions. Parents lose children. Hurricanes flood communities already drowning in waves of hardship. Disease and cancer do not pass over the home of the righteous and faithful. Disaster, disease, and death rain down on the just and unjust alike. <clears throat> if God is so good, why do bad things happen to good, good people is a question for the ages. And to ask that question, why God, is not evidence of weak faith. It's evidence of a bold faith, an engaging faith, one that's in the fight for this relationship. Now, God welcomes these questions. God invites these questions. But what if we don't like the answers or we don't receive an answer like Job? Author and pastor Eugene Peterson wrote the following. One of the surprises as we get older is that we come to see that there is no real correlation between the amount of wrong we commit and the amount of pain we experience. An even larger surprise is that there is often something quite the opposite. We do right and we get knocked down. We do the best that we are capable of doing and just as we are reaching out to receive our reward, we are hit from the blind side and sent reeling. This is the suffering that first bewilders and then outrages us. This is the kind of suffering that bewildered and outraged Job. For Job was doing everything right when suddenly everything went wrong. And it is the kind of suffering to which Job gives voice when he protests to God. I've had many conversations with individuals over the years that are going through tough times and they ask, why is God doing this to me? What have I done? And I too have been tempted to box God into this transactional way of relating together. And it is a common and unfortunate belief in Christianity today as we note the pervasiveness of the prosperity gospel around the world. Your blessings are reward for your faithfulness to God. And if you aren't receiving the blessings by the world standards, then obviously you've done something wrong. In fact, just this past week I heard the story of a man whose two-year-old daughter died from a birth defect. And a pastor's chosen words of comfort to this grieving dad 
was this question. What sin is in your life that would cause this? The story of Job challenges this transactional view we have of God. Job's experience doesn't support it. The author was clear from the very beginning to set the stage for us that Job was beyond reproach. He was blameless. God confirms this. And yet great unimaginable suffering rains down on him from above. Karl Capetz, a professor of historical theology at United Theological Seminary in the Twin Cities, summarizes it this way. In the world as designed by God, suffering is not always the consequence of one's sin. And virtue does not always entail happiness. This may frustrate and anger some people. I mean, if you've been taught a transactional relationship with God, you might feel duped and wonder, what is this all even about then? Perhaps the pressing question from Job for us to consider is not the, why is there suffering? But why do we even choose to love and serve and worship God? When we are faced with the mystery of suffering, when we're airborne in the mess of life, when life doesn't play by the rules, when we don't receive blessings that we feel like we're promised, and even while we voice our protest to God over the injustice of it all, will we still endure with God? The accuser is betting we won't. I wonder what we would say. As God's Spirit helps us ponder this question, there's one sure thing I know. God's love for and presence with us remains regardless of our answer to that question. At not one time in Job's experience, not in the suffering, nor the grieving, not in the questions, nor in the anger, did God ever abandon Job. And why? Because our relationship with God is not transactional. Hear this. God's faithfulness to us is not conditional on our faithfulness to God. God's faithfulness to us, thank God, is not conditional on our faithfulness to God. And in one breath, we get cry out in frustration that we don't get what we think we deserve. And in another breath, we cry out in gratitude that we don't get what we think we deserve. I mean, this is the divine mystery and mercy of God. Now, while many are tempted to end the story of Job here, the story of Job is far from over. I mean, this is simply an intermission until next Sunday's part in the story. There are still 40 more chapters of beautiful poetry and lessons on suffering and God's sovereignty. Job is an invitation to lean into the hard things, not to run from them. God can not only handle it, but he welcomes it. This is what it means to endure with God. My friends, if you are angry with God, 
If you feel like the accuser has had free reign in your life, if God has felt hidden from you, if you've ever asked the question, why is there suffering if God is such a good God, you are not alone. And the story is for you and for me as well. The back page of the playbill that we've provided for you is for all of us to keep this conversation going. It's meant to stir your thoughts, to lead us all toward a deeper faith. And we invite you to share these questions and conversations with your friends and family and neighbors. Sit with the questions with God. And don't miss the next three Sundays as our interim pastor walks us through the rest of this fascinating and very difficult story of Job. And I promise that unlike my family's adventure on that road, there is still plenty of runway on this conversation about the story of Job, a story for the ages. Let's pray together. Lord, we do not always understand suffering in the world. But in our lack of understanding, God, may our trust be ever in you. Teach us in the ways of faith and wisdom that we, like Job, may learn to truly see and to hear you and in humility find blessing. Amen.